Hello and welcome to the second episode of Academic Defectors. I am your host, Jillian Marshall, PhD, with a very special guest today, Ben Nigra, PhD. So Ben and I actually go way back to our undergraduate student days at the University of Chicago, where we lived in the same dorm our first year, and we're friends pretty much throughout the, the four years on campus. However, we lost touch after graduation. Of course, I moved to Japan to teach English. And Ben moved to California to pursue a PhD in archaeology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Now, ironically, my moving to Japan and my subsequent study of Japanese music as a PhD student myself at Cornell University and Ben's moving to California to pursue his PhD is ultimately what put us back in touch. I was so happy last year to receive a message from Ben out of the blue which got us catching up and he read my book and he said, oh my gosh, our experiences in the academy are so similar. I really relate to everything you were saying. And in fact, us getting back in touch is one of the inspirations for me in deciding to do this podcast, knowing that, you know what? I bet there are a lot of us academic defectors out there. Ben finished his degree in 2017, and his dissertation was titled Huaca Soto and the Evolution of Paracas Communities in the Chincha Valley, Peru. So without further ado, let's hear Ben Nigra's story, PhD. Hey, Jill. So good to see you, man. It's been like 13 years, maybe, since we've laid eyes on each other. And your books are spectacular. Japantham was fantastic. Loved it. Ate it in like two sittings. Couldn't stop. Um... So clearly not being out of being out of the academy has not had any impact whatsoever on what you're doing with your brain. So that's, you know, that's been my experience too. So that's totally awesome. It's it's nice, you know, you you got Japantham because you were in it too. You know, you were in academia, you left academia. And you know, that's how we reconnected was that you were like, wow, your experiences were really parallel to mine. So I'm curious, you know, when you were applying to college, you know, way back in high school, did you have an idea of what kind of career path you wanted to follow at that time? Oh, man, that's a big question. I mean, absolutely not. (laughs) And I and I have to say, like, um, this is going to sound really privileged. And I think it is. I had no idea what I wanted to do for money when I went to Chicago. All I, I know what I wanted to do for me. I, I was interested in the world, like a big world. I, I, I wasn't even thinking about, will this translate into like a career? Um, and that's like, a, that's a really privileged place to be, right? You know, not going into higher education, thinking something has to come out of the other side of this. I was thinking, you know, what is it going to do for me? And being from, I think our parallels kind of start maybe with the places that we're from. I know you're from super rural Vermont, right? You're like way, way up there on the border. Yes, yes. But I mean, you're from rural-ish PA, right? I mean, East Coast. Yeah, right. I'm like, an, I was like an hour outside of Pittsburgh, cornfields, you know, old burned up now steel towns, little fading Rust Belt communities um, with a little city. Pittsburgh's a small city, um, you know, an hour away. And uh, my folks did a good job of exposing me and my brothers and sisters to ideas, music, books. They would take us to museums, whatever they could. They did a great job of making us curious people, right? In a, in a place that I think has been in heavy decline since the 80s and is still now going through heavy decline. And when I left Pittsburgh for Chicago, like it was like opioid crisis, like prime time, 
in the towns where I was from and it's just gotten worse and things have gotten worse. Sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's the world that we were living in. But so, you know, we, I came out of that place wanting to go somewhere to make my world bigger. You know, I felt like I had kind of seen the things that were around me as a teenager. I was bright eyed, bushy tailed, like ready to just do it. Right. Ready to go as far away as possible. My parents were like, you can't go west of the Mississippi River. We'll never see you ever again. So I was like, how about Chicago? They said, all right, sure, I'll go to Chicago. Well, that's interesting. So you weren't really sure, you know, you knew what you wanted to do for you. You wanted to expand your world. Maybe there was a little bit of like a fat out of hell. Like I got to just like focus so that I don't, you know, not that you don't want to stay where you're from because you're ashamed of it or anything, but just like you said, so you can have a, you can see what else is out there and then yeah. make decisions accordingly. Right. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't an adult until 30 years old, practically. So it's like, <laughs> I mean, so I had no idea what I wanted to do. All I knew is that I, I had seen my small town experience and I had been exposed to the possibility of a much bigger world by great parenting work by my parents. Um, and so going to Chicago, I mean, and I want to do a shout out on your show, Jill, to whatever admissions officer out there admitted me to the University of Chicago. I don't know why you did it. I honestly don't. I must have been the last number on that stack of paper, but thank you. You changed my life. The University of Chicago changed my life, totally changed my brain, changed the way I think, all for the better. That is so funny. I have often thought the same thing because like, I did not do well in the SAT. I'm not a test taker, but I was like, maybe they need to meet their Vermont quota. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think the, I don't know. Obviously, you not only excelled at Chicago, but you were prepared to do you know, a prestigious PhD program later on. But this leads to another question I have. Did you know what you wanted to study at all when you got to college? Or were you just like, I just want to be here and just figure it out once I, you know, hit the ground? Oh, man. Well, I, I, I did a little bit of anthropology related stuff in high school. I got permission from my public high school, which was like a, a, kind of a middling to poor public high school to leave uh, school once a week during my senior year to, and junior year to go down to Pitt and sit in on their anthro department classes. And I was just, I was interested in big questions. Like my, I was, I spent a lot of my childhood in the natural history museum there and uh, the zoo there and the art museums there. And just was a curious person who wanted to figure out how I work. You know, why am I, how do I relate to other people as a person? How do I relate to my community that I live in? How do societies and communities deal with each other, make new relationships function. I just had these big human questions and I, they were completely undirected. It was just, just chaos. It was like a balloon filled with pressurized gas, right? It was no structure to it. Just lots of questions about people. And uh, my high school was really awful at math. I had a terrible math experience in a public school. So I wasn't going to be a STEM person. I kind of knew that. I was gun shy with mathematics. And I think, you know, that cut a lot of avenues off for me. So I was going to end up in some kind of social science. And I figured like I would figure it out later. Like the money would follow. And I had this ethos of like, I'm just going to do what I want, do what I like to do, do what makes me curious and then something will happen. I just kind of had faith. And that, I think that's the beginning of the delusion, actually, of the, the academic delusion. And it's okay if you're like young, essentially adolescent going to college. Like that's a good, that's a productive delusion at that point. I think it becomes really painful uh, later on. But I got into doing archaeology really quick at Chicago. Did anthro, ate up all the archaeology classes I could, ended up TAing a class as a junior and a senior and started doing field work after my sophomore year. 
and at that point never looked back. So it was the writing was on the wall for me pretty quick. And I never once thought about how this translates into uh, a livelihood. And so, uh, you know, a PhD program was, it was just lined up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I can really relate to, to like, I don't know what I want to study or I don't know what, it, for me, I had no idea what I wanted to study. It seems like you kind of had like, uh, grooming, I guess, in, you know, maybe you should go into anthropology. Plus you're asking all these big questions and anthropology is great because that's where the people who are asking big questions hang out it, any sort of ethnographic or any kind of fieldwork based research. And because we're interested in humans, we're interested in life. Totally. I guess it was also, it was also a choice that allowed me to not make a commitment, right? So when you keep the questions general and you keep the area of study very general, as I think most beginning archaeology students do, you're doing generalist science and asking big social science questions, big anthropological questions, using real data. You're not pigeonholed into something very quick. It is not a track that that makes you specialize quickly. I think one of the reasons why I did it as an undergrad was I didn't I didn't have to make my claim. I just kept it as broad as I could and figured like, you know, we'll figure it out later. How did how did you how did you settle on a field site as an undergrad? Was it contingent upon what your advisors at that time were kind of interested in, and like you just were like, yeah, I'll work with you because this is where you're located? Totally. It, the way it works as an undergraduate is typically undergrads who want to do archaeology do what's called a field school nowadays, which means they're going to go on a project that is being run by faculty members at some university in some part of the world and you're going to be taught how to do basic field archaeology, how to survey, how to excavate, how to look at data, how to handle data. Um, and, and that's kind of your field training. And you're, you're going to pay for that. And you're going to get school credit for that, hopefully, wherever you go. is like you're taking a class. And that's going to be most students' first experience with archaeology. It's called a field school. After second year, I did this. And I went to Chile. The, the program that I wanted to go with was with uh, a Chicago faculty member who was running part of a, a field school down there, which was also associated with UCLA, which is where my uh, beginning of my associated with U- association with UCLA began. And so I did that for a year. And um, I uh, went after my junior year to get some data for a senior thesis. And I, through my same advisor, that I had then established a great mentor-mentee relationship with that with my undergraduate advisor, who then let me go down and look at some collections that she had been a part of excavating that were sitting in a small regional museum uh, in the south of Peru. And it was actually wooden spoons. I wrote my senior thesis on wooden spoons, which is pretty pretty wild and specific. Um, and so I went and I lived in this little town and I basically measured wooden spoons and entered a lot of data into spreadsheet, was looking for patterns. And so then that was my first sort of independent project outside of field training. And then from there, um, I went back and was a staff member on a couple different field schools, teaching students as a sort of transition between undergrad and grad school. I was working in southern Peru um, outside of the city of Arequipa, staffing one of these field schools. And that's where I ended up getting the data for my master's thesis. So I kind of made these connections early well, I was at Chicago and I worked with this Chicago archaeologist 
through my master's at UCLA. And I got to UCLA because I had met a lot of the folks working in the Andes through this connection early. And so that's where I wanted to go from the beginning. I kind of, I called that shot. I wanted to keep working with those people. So that's how I ended up at UCLA. It sounds like you really lined up and that you had this team of people that kind of kept pushing you in the direction that you needed to go into as, you know, as budding archaeologist. And did you take a gap year after Chicago? I did. I moved to Cleveland. I worked in a sandwich shop and I had a rock band with my little brother who was in, in college in Cleveland at the time. So we had this like um, garage rock band. We got like um, an old house that had been foreclosed on during the 2008 housing market crisis. And we flipped part of it and we um, just jammed in the basement and I made uh, sandwiches. And that's what I ate for a year because I get free sandwiches. I didn't make any money, but I, I applied to graduate school. And I kept the, I guess the key for me was field work happens in the summer for us in North America. So I was still going down to the field after we finished undergraduate. I got another season in. Then I moved to Cleveland and I was able to work there do the do the process to get into graduate school at UCLA and then go back to the field again the following summer. So I didn't really miss a beat, which was cool. But yeah, I think you mentioned an important point, which is that a lot of people invested in me early. Uh, I, I always envisioned it kind of like a job. I'm the kind of person, I don't know about you, I get the impression you may be similar, that always had a job. Like when I was a teenager, I had a job. I was like 15 years old. I was like just able to be legally employed had like two summer jobs. I worked like cutting grass for the township, like doing dirty jobs, riding on the back of tractors on farms, delivering pizzas. I did like every nasty job a teenager could do in Western Pennsylvania. And then I worked in college in a couple of places. So me going to the field, you know, in exchange for kind of this investment in me as a student, to me, it was just a job. It was not just a job, but it was akin to a job. I felt like I was providing something. I was... I was laboring intellectually, but also physically. Archaeology is a, a terribly difficult physical job. I mean, it's it's hands and knees. It's dirty. There's a lot of sun. Conditions aren't always hospitable. Um, and in return, I was kind of getting this investment from these folks who were pushing me kind of through the system and, and enabling me to sort of proceed further into academia. But I never, I, I never once conceived of it as something outside of an exchange of like my labor for, you know, what I was getting in return. It, at least to me, it always felt that way. I, I'm grateful for people who, who made those investments in me, but I always felt like I gave back, you know, what was put, put in, if that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like the down to earth aspects of the kinds of work that you were doing as a teenager, right. Almost prepared you for archeology span in that way. But instead of just, getting some paycheck and then blowing it on, you know, gas money and, you know, whatever, cheap beer or whatever teenagers spend money <laughs> on. But you like we're also getting credentials at the same time. And that's one of the things about graduate school that, especially in fields in the humanities and social sciences, is that we get these credentials that end up meaning a lot in our fields that don't necessarily translate out in the world, you know, like maybe by any other profession, digging around on your hands and knees you know, <laughs> wouldn't exactly have the same, I guess, prestige, I suppose. Not that that is a bad thing to do. I have nothing but respect for people that, you know, do real honest to God work, you know, good on you. You deserve every penny, you know, and times a thousand in my book. But it seems like in a weird way that almost maybe it 
helped you feel kind of at home in anthropology. It did because it made me feel like I was. It made me feel like I wasn't just taking something from the world without giving something back. And I guess the way to express this is, um, you know, my, my parents had graduate degrees. My grandparents did not. My great grandparents worked in like mines and shit, you know. So, but there were no academics like in my family tree. No, prof- no pure professors. No, no intellectual people that earn their money by intellectual work. Okay, like dad was like an accountant. My mom worked at works at Carnegie Mellon still with their supercomputing center, but she's she's kind of an administrator there and a technical writer there. But this was like the first the idea of like I'm gonna go, and especially once you get to graduate school, like oh, this is going to be kind of covered in a certain sense. And I was very lucky in this regard too. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be allowed to have a place to live, have enough money. This, this process I'm in is going to float me, right? I'm going to eat. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to have a place to sleep. I have to, I, it was hard for me to just kind of accept that and, and just take it and run with it. And I think archaeology made me feel like I was working for something. And that was important to me because justifying sort of a choice to spend my post-college years doing this rather than taking the opportunity to go out there and create value in some other way. I don't know if it's, maybe it's because I'm like, I'm a lapsed Catholic and I was just like, you know, self-flagellating, like, I, oh, I just got to suffer, you know, if I'm out there in the world, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, interesting. That's a whole nother, that's for a whole nother podcast, I guess. But I like that aspect of like, I was working hard for it. And that made me feel good about it. And that made me feel confident that what I was doing was valuable. Um, Right. And you bring up a really good point here, you know, for a 21, 22 year old fresh out of college, right. Who like you're describing you, you wanted to, you were eager to work. You kind of fell into archeology span pretty quickly at U Chicago, but it seems like another aspect too. Well, there's two things. One graduate school, at least certainly in a field like archeology, span you clearly have an adventurous spirit. You clearly have been interested in travel ever since uh, you were you know, young. You mentioned earlier that your parents were like, don't move west of the Mississippi. We'll never see you again. <laughs> of course, you know, you're calling in today from San Diego, but they, they knew something. But clearly travel is probably part of the appeal too for you, right? You know, being an archaeologist, you get to go and have these paid field trips. You're chilling in South America six months a year. Sounds pretty sweet, no? Of course. I, that's totally a huge draw, right? Because not only are you getting to kind of explore big generalist questions about human beings and the communities they live in, but you're actually like experiencing it too, right? You're, you're actually leaving the comfort of your home, going with this small group of people who may or may not know each other very well, staying, it's like a reality TV show, staying in like some remote place with like the internet may or may not work and there may or may not be hot water. And, you know, you're going to do that for a couple months at a time and it's, that's its own ethnographic monstrosity that someone has done, I'm sure at this point, a total ethnography of like field, intensive field study situations, right? But that's its, that's its own draw too, right? That, that exposes a certain frame of humanity, which is also fascinating. And um, these little itinerant pop-up communities that just kind of appear and then too much later disappear. It's its own, it's its own study, I think, but that's totally part of the draw. So here's the thing. You're, you're 22 years old. Someone says, what do you want to do? Well, I'm already, you know, waist deep in this thing. I've gotten pretty good at it. I've gotten a couple independent opportunities, people that will take me on and keep me on. Uh, I'll have somewhere to sleep. I'll have something to eat. 
And for a quarter of the year, I will be flying, flown on somebody else's dime usually down to South America to work, which I like to work with my hands anyway, and further myself. And then there's this, this is where the delusion gets pretty serious, right? Then there is this promise at the end of the day, somewhere over the horizon, while we're all having fun and enjoying just being in the now and doing field work and learning and growing, being curious, over the horizon somewhere, there is this like rising sun of like a job, right? Somewhere this will all kind of turn into something that is not just this like late adolescent wanderlust, right? You know, somewhere there's something of promise. And that's that's really the delusion, I think. Well, I mean, of course, at the time, you know, now we're transitioning into your time in graduate school, right? Like when you when you get that PhD acceptance letter, you're like, I am set. You know, I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but for me, I was like, well, I'm I'm golden. I'm in a top PhD program, getting a professor job. Like I've been told by the people that I was sort of encouraged to pursue graduate school by they were like oh yeah like if you once you get in if you're in a top program you'll be fine like that's like there's no problem getting a job after that and then you know like you said you're get paid you know we got paid pretty decently at cornell 32 grand a year but for a 23 year old that's that's great great that's fantastic like you said summer's funded blah 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 i'm going off to japan you know this is a pretty sweet gig and you know at the end to be a professor which is also kind of this as a job, it's sort of an, it has a lot of abstract duties, right? Yes, you teach, and that is a very tangible thing, but you also have to do research and you're also going to conferences and you're, you know, you're really living in your mind. And the thing about being a professor that really appealed to me, which I'm guessing probably appeals, appealed to you too, is that you have a lot of autonomy. You don't really have a lot of people telling you what to do when you're a professor. You just kind of get to do your own thing. Right? Absolutely. That was a huge appeal to me. And I once said to, I think it was my mother, I said, I can't, I don't, I don't understand how you can work in an office. How can you work under the thumb of some other person who's telling you what to do all the time? It was a huge draw for me, the idea of being a professor, a college professor, and that I would have my own specific area of things I was interested in and I was going to be, it was going to be prestigious, right? going to be renowned as a specialist in this thing that appealed to me too and then there would be of course some kind of payout there would be some kind of salary and an important thing for me too was i had told myself you know i really i think it would be great to be in a university environment forever because you have all these young people with fresh ideas like I, who wouldn't want to live among these people that are excited about the world, this will keep me young forever, right? That's a huge draw. That, you're literally inside my brain right now. That was like, you know, that was such a big motivation for me to want to go to grad school when I was like a third year in college. It was like, well, I guess I've come this far and I'm clearly not pre-law. I'm clearly not pre-med. I'm clearly not interested in those things, but I am interested in XYZ humanistic things, right? And I was like, well, being a professor wasn't necessarily the end goal in and of itself, but being in a college campus, being around young people who are idealistic and full of hope. And, you know, you Chicago was gorgeous. Oh, it was changed totally. my life. And the idea of being like in these gorgeous college campuses, like amongst all this great architecture, and you go to pretty much any college in the US, there's it's going to be filled with impressive building, it's going to be nice. And that that appealed to me too, aesthetically. And it was like, yeah, well, being a professor could really tick all these boxes, you know what I mean? So it was like less I want to be a professor because X, Y, Z reason. It was more like, I don't want to go into, you know, some kind of, I don't want to go into a straight job. Yeah. You know what I mean? And being a professor 
there's like an alternative route that still offers me stability and still like gives me sufficient intellectual challenge and ability to travel and engage with these humanistic questions. Does this, does this resonate with you? Absolutely. I remember from early in graduate school, maybe my first year, second year, um, talking to some of my friends from, from life, friends I grew up with or other friends we went to college with who went off into the private sector and got jobs kind of right after college. And I remember being feeling justified in, in my decision at the time because they would say things like, oh, you're so lucky you were living this like great, I guess this was before Instagram, but it would be a very Instagrammable life, right? Like you're all around the world and you're very young and you're having fun and, um, and I'm just like suffering every day. One of my buddies is a, a civil engineer and I remember him describing being in like the winter and like the Chesapeake Bay and like hip waders or something doing some dredging project and describing that to me and saying, oh man, this is so, this is so heinous. So there were these moments where early on you think, oh man, I really, I really did luck out. I really did hit the right thing. Here I am getting exactly what I want. And I did get what I want. I want to, I want to put that out there too. This whole process, I, I got what I wanted from it. And at that point, early on in graduate school, was I think the real height of it when you're really you're really drunk on the freedom. Yes, and like you said, I mean, you you're you came about it with a lot of humility, but yeah, I mean, I was a little bit smug in the beginning too. Like- oh, I was totally smug. I was an arrogant sob. I mean, I thought I was God's gift to the academy. I mean, I don't think this is an uncommon experience for people, and I'm sure it wasn't as bad as I make it out to be. But like, you think you had it figured out after four years of undergraduate, then you just get launched onto this other plane, right? Well, and then you know, when you're in graduate school. What were, what were your first couple of years like academically? Were you like, this is comparable to undergrad, this is more difficult or just more specialized? What did it feel like to you academically speaking? Uh, I think, first of all, I think Chicago prepared us extremely well. Uh, you know, I was, same thing. I was curious and eyes wide open. I had, you know, massive amounts of books coming in from everywhere on every conceivable archaeological subject. I would just spend all my time just devouring all the knowledge I could. And, and that was, that was, I'm thankful for that part of my life because that created tangible skills that I think still are useful in just processing a ton of information. But, um, you know, I went into it just drinking from the fire hose as much as I could and looking for like grand threads, right? Like really kind of doing the, like looking for something to tie it all together, doing theory. One thing Chicago really helped with was theory. I had I love that in early grad school when you're doing like heavy coursework. That's what I really wanted to focus on more than anything, tying like core anthropological theory back to the data that we would we would talk about and the field data we would get. So I I didn't I don't think I struggled. I I got good marks, passed the those qualifying exams uh, without without much trouble. Were your professors like yeah superstar like? He's going to make it. Did you get the sense that like, oh yeah, tenure track. I mean, obviously it is abstract in the beginning of grad school. The idea of like the dissertation, it's light years away. The idea of getting a job, you just think, well, all I have to do is just do well with my courses. All I have to do is just, you know, focus on, you know, learning as much as possible and I'll be good. Yeah. This is where it gets really tricky for me. I, I was the kind of kid who, and I say kid because I'm still thinking back to undergrad in this transition. I was the kind of person and kind of still am who like, gets a, the assignment and does it like that night so that my free time is mine, right? I'm an anti-procrastinator. I, I want things off my plate as soon as possible so I can be free. And I took a similar approach, I guess, early in graduate school. I wanted things 
done out of the way, boxes checked so that I could do the rest of life, right? Because I still conceive of this as my job, even though this is like the best thing ever. I love it. I still feel that I'm exchanging something for something. You know, I'm a student, but I'm there to do as best I can to produce something because I'm being given essentially a livelihood. I'm being put up and I'm being fed. And I ended up publishing a lot as a graduate student, more than most graduate students will publish a couple first author publications and lots of co-authored publications. Because I, to me, it felt like, well, this is what I'm giving back almost. Like I'm, I'm still a, a student, but nowadays we know that like advanced graduate students are essentially junior researchers, you know, and don't get the credit or the pay for being such. But, you know, I was generating a lot of material and trying to generate a lot of material. It made me feel good about where I was. But this is, I think, to your point, this is where the delusion really kind of starts. Like you, you're too excited at the very beginning about having gotten to where you want to be to really sit down and consider the long-term plan, at least if you're 23 years old like I was. I mean, I've had colleagues who I knew in my graduate program who were older who came in after a private sector career, maybe they were in their like late 20s, early 30s. And I think they probably had a better grasp. But at 23 years old, I didn't stop, sit down and crunch the numbers and think about probabilities of like where this was going to end up. So what I think I did and what I think a lot of people do is they end up creating this delusion and they tell themselves, at least this is my experience. I told myself, well, if I do the very best that I can get out of my qualifying exam period as soon as I can, get my dissertation done as soon as I can, meet a lot of people. If I just apply myself 100%, then at the end of the day, there will be this job for me. And with that job, I will have employment. And then I will go and do all the other things in life that I wanna do, that I've since done being out of academia, start a family, I've got a couple kids, bought a house. But like, it was all predicated on this delusion that like, if I just push harder, just push, push, push harder, 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 that I will arrive at this place. And this is, it's a fantasy. It's living in a world that doesn't exist. And that's by the numbers. That's the math, right? 93% of humanities and social science PhDs as of 2020 do not go on to the tenure track. 93%. 93%. Now the question is, why do 93% of those people go through this process thinking that they've got a shot or hoping you would assume hoping that they have a shot at this to your point it has to be kind of a delusion right because i i totally understand what what you said this has to be a meritocracy this is school this right is, it, exactly it has to be like if my, the quality of my work is good then i'll be fine that's what i can control that's what i can ensure that's right so okay you did your qualifying exams you did great they didn't burn you out or make you crazy Still pushing, still under the delusion that if I put it 100% pedal to the metal, it's still a meritocracy. I'm still going to come out on top. And I got to say, I, I had great support at UCLA. And I don't, the, the, the folks on my committee and my advisor and the staff and the faculty that I worked with were all 100% helpful to me in my favor and gave me all the resources I needed to succeed. They were 100% supportive of me, but also my colleagues, the other students that were there too. They, they wanted us to succeed. Do you mean hit the tenure track? Uh, to, I, I don't know. Because they know that 93% of those of us coming through weren't going to make it. The faculty in these programs are taking more, some of them more than one student per year for jobs that are not one new job per year, right? So you have to ask yourself, if I'm a professor 
tenured professor taking students and I take a student a year, two students a year, what do I really think is going to happen to those people? Are we like insects that lay a thousand eggs and hope one will survive? Or are we like mentoring primates where we like pick a good person? And so you kind of feel like you're the chosen at least I kind of felt like I was, I was doing really well and people would invest in me and that's because they saw something in me they thought I would make it. Um, but they, nobody promised me anything um, in terms of like employment, right? But, you know, I did do good work. And when I did good work, they acknowledged that work. You know, I asked when I, for my project, for my dissertation project, I did something that as far as I know, very few people get to do in today's archaeology as students, but it used to be kind of the the gold standard, I think, if you went back 20, 30 years, which was I ran a big excavation with a big crew on a big piece of architecture. So I did I did a big excavation on essentially a temple mound on the coast of Peru with big sunken quartz in it. And um, you know, I designed the methodology for the study and I had partially by co-directing one of these field schools. I had undergraduates there, I had volunteers there, other graduate students that had come in to, to just get more field experience or just to do a cool project. This A budget, essentially, that came from running this field school um, creates a budget for you because those students pay to come to get this experience. Um, so I had this budget and this project, and it was big. It was a much bigger undertaking than I think a lot of archaeology, today's archaeology, PhD students get to do. And it was old school. And I love that. I loved it being like an old school project, just a big dig, like general, I'm a generalist thinker here. And that's what I wanted. And, and I proved to the people that were helping me that I deserved that. And I made good on it. So I, nobody promised me a job, but they did reward me for good work. And I, I don't have any gripes with, with those individuals. As far as I'm concerned, the individuals that I worked with were and are professionals. I got no gripes with them. They're good people. So far, you're painting a pretty rosy picture of grad school. Although I know, you know, since we're here, academic defection, <laughs> clearly there was a turning point. But what was the title of your dissertation? Oh, geez. I, you know, I recently went back and read my dissertation. Much, it took, it took, oh, yeah. Oh, I did it. I did it. It took like four years to get around to going back and reading. It was, um, you know, I don't even remember the title. It was something about the evolution of social complexity in Paracas communities in Chincha Alta, Peru. That tells you how much I've selectively forgotten. But what I what I did was I looked at the development of early ritual architecture and and how that was a factor in the establishment of these early complex societies on the on the coast of uh, Peru, south of Lima. So you were saying when did it when did it turn? In, in the 2020 vision of retrospects. How did I know it was turning? How did you know? Um, there was a period where I spent like six months in the field and I spent like half of that like completely by myself. I was analyzing field data in a city called Chincha Alta, which is not really much there to do in a little rented house, which was really more of a depository for all of the finds of this project that we were working on. Um, and I live in there by myself and I was kind of going crazy because I was looking through like among the data I had like 15,000 pot sherds and like I'm going through them like one by one, like measuring things and cataloging, categorizing things, right? I'm doing this like hardcore focus work and I'm, you know, eating in the same little place every day. And all of this has its charm to it too, right? But at this point it was kind of bridging on insanity. 
you know, I started to realize and it, it didn't all happen in a flash moment, but I think this is really where it kind of congeals that thinking back about Los Angeles and my community there of my actual community, right? Cause here I am in this imagine this world of imaginary communities that I'm studying that lived 3000 years ago, trying to piece together how they work. And, and then I've got these itinerant field community that I'm a part of that kind of comes together once a year, but then disappears and leaves me by myself in Peru for three months. And then I start to think about what do I have, you know, back in LA, my family, first of all, are in Pittsburgh. They're half a world away. I see them during the holidays. My friends from high school and college are scattered all over. And I think back to LA and I think, where, where are my friends? Like, so looking around and I had some friends early in grad school, other archaeologists, but they're off. They've, some of them have moved on, gotten jobs or have dipped from academia. Others are just, you know, in their own field projects. They're not with me. And I had some friends from UCLA who, who weren't in archaeology, but we kind of fell out and they kind of went their way. And I, and I realized holy shit, here I am studying communities, people. I don't even feel like I have my own community of people. Here I am all by myself for three months doing this thing that I've been doing. And I think I missed the point. I didn't have the relationships I wanted to have. And part of that was because of the schedule of doing field archaeology Part of that was because of the mental pressure and stress of doing field archaeology. I mean, I had opportunities to make more friends. I lived in LA for four years. I barely went out at all. I would like go out to a bar in the evening or something, but like I didn't trip around Southern California. I didn't like go out even to the city to see anything. It's hard when you're in LA and you're making like less than 30 grand a year, right? That's not much. That's not easy, right? So, you know, I was, I realized I was kind of a shut in. I, and so, that's when I started to realize that something was very wrong. So this is post-qualifying exams. This is post-qualifying exams. This is doing the meat, like this is doing the the big data, dissertation data. Before writing, this is collecting data. So after this period, I went back to LA. I had got all the data I needed and I was going to write. And I wrote, I wrote for, you know, a year and a half, two years. Um, while I was still, you know, analyzing that data, you have, I'm talking like you have like hundreds of pounds of material and you're like, you know, putting together this, you know, magnum opus about this group of people that lived in ancient times in Peru and I'm back in LA, get back to LA. And now I'm going to be in LA. I'm going to stop going to the field. It's 2015. But yet your head is still in the field. And so there's still this kind of right. disjointed, not really in the place that you're in. Right. Because your mind is focused on right, I'm focused on that. But then this, then these incredible things started happening to me. So I, you know, a good friend of mine who I'd known since high school moved uh, to Los Angeles. So that was great. So here I am. I'm kind of I'm on a writing schedule now. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waking up. I'm going to the university a couple of days a week to teach, TA, and but I'm mostly writing. But now I have an old friend here. So I have an old friend here. And then I meet a couple other people by chance through going out, met some friends. And now we have like a group of friends there. And then I, you know, met uh, who would be my, become my wife, Claire. You know, I met her. And so now I have this community over this course of writing. And it immediately became clear that I would much rather be in the real world with these people than be focused and isolated in this other world. And I don't think that's the way it has to be. And I don't even think that's the way it is for most archaeologists. But um, it was such a night and day experience between 
turning my focus towards building my own community or being part of an active community. I cannot imagine how people do it who do like strings of postdocs and stuff, uproot themselves every year, twice a year, going here to their lecturing for five years. That sounds like hell to me. It sounds like exactly what I experienced in the field. Trying to maintain your own sense of community when you're just constantly rootless. So yeah, so this isn't like the friends, you know, save me from myself kind of story, but it is the juxtaposition that I had just, I had focused on the delusion so much. This idea that I just have got to be the best. I have to be the best, absolute best. Going to do it, going to do it because this is how I get to make this thing uh, lucrative. This is how I turn this into a job. Because at this point now, I'm thinking now I'm like 27, 28 years old and I'm thinking, oh crap, like I'm looking around. I don't want to live like this forever, right? I don't want to. I don't want to be that guy. Probably the friends you had too that were like toiling away at age 21, 22. Now they're climbing the ladder. They're doing well, and you're like, what? Exactly. And I see people there doing their thing. They're starting their families. They're setting down roots. They're you know doing the things that they want to do, whatever those things are, right? And it's not that I live my life in comparison. You know, you 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 feel stuck at the end of a program like that. If you're still grinding your wheels, it's a sticky feeling. I, I reached a point too, and I was 28, 29. I'm reaching into my program, and I'm like, I, whatever people I had that I was friends with here at the beginning of the program, a lot of them have left. You know, they've moved on to other, you know, they're adjuncting or they just moved away, postdoc, you know, whatever. They're in that whole gig. And it's like, I'm single. There's no one here. Whatever people remain on campus, they're my competition now. Right. Mm hmm. <laughs> this isn't what I thought at all, you know, like, right. totally. When you were writing your dissertation and you would come back from this really isolating time just in Chincha Alta, Peru, kind of living a Groundhog Day life, you and your shards. Shards, Jill, shards. <laughs> well, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> you, know, you come back and then you're writing your dissertation and which again, like your head, like you said, maybe some people can balance. I know people that are able to do that. For me, I found I went through something very similar where I was like, I'm writing about this life that I had in Japan, where I'm going to parties and I'm just kind of living a bohemian life, you know. It's amazing what you did, man. It's, I would love to have lived a day in your shoes. I would have like a big dig. Big dig is, you know, that, that's some that's some serious shit. Like that sounds pretty cool to me. I don't know. <laughs> but uh you know, I, I reached a point where when I was writing my dissertation, I really identify with what you're saying because I was like, wait a minute, I'm writing about the life that I wish I had here. Like, who am I? Am I the person who is going to parties and, you know, having fun? Or am I like this mild mannered, serious PhD student? And it became clear when I was writing my dissertation, like, yeah, you know what? I think I, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to call it. This is not how I'm going to get. Yeah the kind of happiness that I need in my life and other people, you know, good. If they can stay in academia, that's great. But then you get to the end and maybe because you and I both started too, and we were in our early twenties where for me, it was kind of like undergrad 2.0, la la la. Like this is fun. Just kind of the natural coming of age that I think people go through in their late twenties, which is a serious time, you know, like, wait a minute. I want to have a family. How do I do that? I want to have a career. Right. I will say this. I mean, of, of the, of the tenured folks I know who made it, there was a lot more people who were single or were married but didn't chose not to have kids or didn't have kids than there were kind of the families that looked like the family I had growing up. 
and the family that I wanted growing up, you know, the family that I wanted for myself, which I have now, it was hard. I mean, there are people who raise kids apart from their partners. There are people who, you know, just never go down that road and, and that's okay. That's personal choice. And that, that's what those people wanted. And, and so I would never second guess the choice in doing that. But yes. um, I started to realize, I think like you, that the, the things I actually wanted from life, the delusion starts to crack fade around the edges. And then you start to see this picture I painted for myself. It's not going to work out exactly the way I thought, huh? Like the, there's going to be a lot more suffering and it, it changes, it shifts beneath your feet. So now here I'm at the end of graduate school considering, you know, what it's going to be like to go on to a, a job market and do this. And like, well, if I can stay in Los Angeles somehow, I think I can pull it off, right? If I can, if I could be here and work for one of the Cal State institutions or if even a smaller gig, not a bigger gig, you know, then I can, my friends are still here and, you know, my partner's still here. And um, then I think I could pull it off. So the delusion, you start to shift it under your feet. Your fantasy starts to change. And then when you watch your peers at the very end go through the heartbreaking process of looking for work, um, some of which uh, make it, some of which don't make it, some of which do the absolute worst outcome, which is like struggle hard against it for five years and then don't make it. You watch people go through that and you realize that the stakes of the game, it's, it's stacked against you. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter uh, how good of a scholar you are. Um, your research interests do matter because trendiness is, let's face it, academia is an insular guild, right? It sets its own standard. You talk about echo chambers, you know, if you're not really kind of spot on what the ivory tower is looking for right there, it doesn't matter how good you are, how good of a scholar you are. That's not going to help you. So, you know, once, once that happened, I knew I was going to go. And I told my advisor about two years out that, I wasn't going to go into the academic world. And to his credit, he was as supportive as ever. You know, he was just like, that's your choice. Totally. You, you go for it. You know, send me a draft of that dissertation as soon as you possibly can. Um, you know, uh, yeah, he was, he was a great guy. He still is a great guy. And I think I told him some bullshit. I think I said like, I'm going to go into art crime. I'm going to try to work for the federal government and like do antiquities that like come through airports illegally and like stuff. Some like, equally diluted like approach like okay so you're 30 and you're gonna go find a job with a federal investigatory authority and just walk in one day and become the resident you know specialist in south american <laughs> antiquities like equally diluted it speaks to how those of us that do a phd we're not only pursuing something that's very quixotic right we don't even realize it in the beginning because you know i thought it was a meritocracy i thought it was like a game of you know what you put in is what you get out of it right and then you know like you said you realize at the end that no the odds are stacked against you if your research isn't hot or even things like you know oh that like our first choice candidate for the job search didn't say yes and we're going to lose our money if we don't hire someone so we'll just go the next person in line like doesn't matter who i saw people get hired like that at cornell and it's not to say that these people aren't qualified, but mm -hmm. it had little to do with who they were as researchers or teachers, or mm -hmm. it's just like in the department's interest to hire them for this, you know, kind of haphazard reason. I was like, huh, so it right. really isn't about my work. So here you are two years out, mm -hmm. you broke the news to your advisor. You know what, man, I think I'm going to call it. And then when you left, you're 30 years old. What has it been like for you since you left the academy? How's your career journey kind of panned out now that you've had to kind of start almost from scratch again. Yep. 
one of the nice things about having gone through graduate school is you know how to have a decent life with like almost no money. Unless you're one of, unless you're one of these people that like, you know, can afford to be like a lifelong itinerant lecturer because you're independently wealthy, right. which neither of us are. Um, you know, I can live in Los Angeles on less than 30 grand a year. So I can take pretty much whatever job I want. And uh, this PhD has got to be worth something, right? So, you know, the first thing I did was get married to Claire. That was cool. So then now two of, now we had two of us making $60,000 a year. Woohoo! And so living in a one bedroom apartment in Los Angeles. So now we're living the high life, right? We're like eating out like on the weekends, like life is good. Those were, those were golden years. You know, those are the postgraduate school, pre-children years, like could have been penniless, would have been happy. Still am happy. But, um, so I did what I always do whenever I have a question of this magnitude, which is I called my dad and said, Hey dad, not going to be a professor. And he said, cool, that's great. Well, you know, what do you want to do? I said, dad, I have no idea what I want to do. He said, Hmm. Yeah, that's tricky. I don't know. You have to think about it a little bit. I said, well, what should I do? He said, well, look, just go get a job for two years. Just any job, something non-academic, company job somewhere. You got to put in two years. That's it. And that goes on your resume. And after that, maybe you'll have an idea of what you want to do. And even if you don't, you probably make a little bit of money. And now look, you've proven that you can work in the private sector. So I said, all right. So I went out, I applied to a couple jobs. I took the first one that said yes. I didn't didn't really care much about the content of it. It was with this company out of New York that sourced expert witnesses for trial attorneys. So basically what we would do all day, and they had an LA office at the time they were building. I was like the fourth or fifth person brought into this office. Mind you, like the only person with a PhD by far, everyone else was like fresh out of undergraduate, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, like first job kind of thing. So I went back to the job I could have got at 22, 23 years old. I think they hired me because they thought I would be useful to them. They're starting this office. They got a guy who's maybe a little bit older and kind of kind of do the work without a whole lot of management, put it that way. And they were, it was cool. I'm glad they gave me that job. But I even, when I interviewed that job, I told the CEO at the time, I said, hey, look, I know I'm a little bit probably overqualified for this, but I'm just, I want to hold down and I'll do good work for you for at least two years. You get two years of good work out of me. That's what I want. And then I want to go into like management consulting or something like that. I don't know what I told him. And he's like, okay. So they gave me this job and I worked for them for two years. And it was um, basically calling people all day long, trying to find these experts that would help consult on typically civil court cases that had sticky subject matter, like uh, you know, suing uh, TikTok, suing Facebook over part of an algorithm they think belongs to them. This is just an example, right? And they got to find somebody to convince a jury of 12 average Joes that, you know, that this makes sense. So go find somebody who's worked on these kind of algorithms. We'll see if we can hire them as a consultant. So I was doing that kind of stuff. Was it, was it feeding you intellectually or dare I ask spiritually? Definitely not spiritually. It was rough spiritually. I mean, when you have a P, you just went through this hell of PhD. You were like, I was like one of four people in the world that knew anything about this cultural group. Like I was a heavy specialist, heavily educated. And, you know, a year into this job, I'm in a shoulder to shoulder in a glass box room in a WeWork with, you know, you know, 15 other young 20 somethings feeling completely out of place. So here I am. This is my penance. This is what I this is what I paid to, to get up and out. I feel like that was the cost I paid. But this company, they were good to me. You know, they paid decent and it was there. I 
had my first son, my oldest son, while I worked for that company. So, you know, I raised a family, you know, started to raise a family off that, that experience. So by the end, um, I was totally ready to be done with that spiritually. It was completely deafening. Um, intellectually, it was kind of cool because you learn about a lot of things going on out there. Um, you learn about a lot of different industry standards, what's going on in healthcare, what's going on um, uh, in the legal world. So there was, it was cool in that regard. It was experience of value. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, if you have an idea, you know, back in the academy, right? And then like, well, oh, how can I justify this? What, what sources can I find to kind of back this up and like legitimize it, right? It almost mm -hmm. seems like doing that except on a very, uh, a larger scale. Yeah. Hey, I built myself another delusion, right? It was just like, I'm, I'm in it for two years. Like, this is just what I have to do. On the other side, there is this like, you know, paradise. I'm, I just got to get through this, right? So here I am. I, if I didn't learn anything from graduate school, I'm still building delusions. So what do you do now? I, I left that company in uh, 2019. Um, somebody I know reached out to me and said, uh, hey, uh, I'm working for a biotech company that's headquartered in Korea. They have a subsidiary in San Diego. They need somebody to be a, you know, essentially a business administrator. Somebody, it's a small group of people. It was like three people we started, but someone's got to be there to like get the mail. Someone's got to be there to like make sure people get paid, do payroll uh, to liaise between the corporate headquarters in Korea and not only the company I was working for, but the other company that the parent company owned, a couple different companies make the communication work, and uh, most of all, to build this little company into a research organization. So scale it up. So find the right people. I was good at that point of finding people. Hire people, manage a budget. And so I started doing that, kind of like a corporate project manager. And I was good at that. I mean, archaeology gave me some skills in that. I could, I could work a, a big pre-planned project with a timeline and a budget. And then as that company evolved... And got bigger, they let me take on more and more responsibilities for it. To where at this point, you know, I'm the essentially the I run the the subsidiary. So I'm the director of operations uh, for this subsidiary company. I oversee the financial aspect of it, the accounting and finance um, through you know uh, a, a team of accountants that we have. And I oversee all the personnel issues, all the hiring of people, HR, what you would call HR kind of stuff. I run the office in the sense of keeping an office going, managing an office. Um, and I also do some clinical operations work too in our active clinical trials. The company runs clinical trials. The parent company is a drug development company. So they develop a drug in Korea and then they trial it here in the US on human subjects to see if it is safe and efficacious. Um, and so I have been growing, sort of incubating within this biotech organization um, for three years now. And that has been incredibly rewarding. Um, I have learned a ton about how the process of clinical trials and clinical trial management works in the U.S., how complicated it is, how expensive it is. Uh, and I've been able to put a lot of the skills to use that I, some of the hard skills that I learned as an archaeologist, also the people management skills. I mean, the big dig involved a lot of uh, dealing with people. As you can imagine, these itinerant field communities that pop up and the problems that come up left to right. I was really bad at soft skills when I started doing archaeology. Like I was not the guy you wanted to talk to about the problem. I would just bunk it up. Over the years, I uh, 
I got better at it. And now that's a huge part of what I do too, is I keep, keep our company liquid legal and I keep people happy. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I feel like I am pretty good at it. I, I'm not unhappy. That's great. I mean, it, it was interesting hearing your story, both in the Academy before the Academy or before, you know, graduate school and then after, and certainly during, it seems like you've had this, this lust for good old fashioned work and for just doing the best that you can just to do the best that you can. If you're going to do something, don't half-ass it. You might as well do it and learn the most that you can. 100%. 100%. I don't understand how people half-ass work if there's an opportunity to learn something. Again, it's from a position of relative privilege to be able to say that. But um, I love to do a good job at whatever it is I'm doing. And I'm still able to apply that. And I also don't understand how people watch television all the time. People consume so much television. I just think it's such a waste of time. So you're just going to sit there and stare at that. And you could be doing like any, any other thing. Like, what are you learning? Unless you're watching a documentary, right? I don't know. That makes me an a-hole, I guess, but. I, I get it. I, I, I get it. I'm, I think we're kind of cut from the same cloth in that respect. Sometimes I'm like, why was I born now? Why was I born in this generation? Cause I just like, I'm very stodgy. What I'm getting here is that you, you're like this shining beacon of hope for PhDs that realize when their delusion cracks, right? Because that's a very, it's almost like a coming of age moment in a way where you're like, wait a minute, what I thought I was signing up for is turn, turning out. It's like, that's not what I'm getting. And it's very disillusioning, right? But you didn't let those disillusions hinder you. You said, well, if this is the way that things are going, then I, I'm not going to sit here and you know rage against the inevitable for five years and then just be in an even worse position. Might as well get the advice of your dad, which I loved. It's great. Give it two years. Get your feet wet. Get some experience. Get the most that you can out of it, and then that will you know leverage you into a better position. You clearly know how to take advantage of opportunities, and it seems like you're utilizing the skills that you learned during your PhD days. Right, you're self-directed you are able to kind of, you know, think on a broad scale, think almost, I think, kaleidoscopically, like, you know, critical theory, for example. It's not what you're looking at, it's how you're looking at it. Kind of like, you know, like at the doctor's office, same, worse, better, same, worse, better, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, you're able to kind of employ that in your, in your life at, and build a new career out of, you know, something that, you know, let's call it as we see it is pretty, you know, obscure. I mean, being an archaeologist, it's not exactly something most, you know, it's like a real life Indiana Jones. Shit. <laughs> most people don't come across that in their life. And I say this as ethnomusicologists, like literally like a joke on 30 Rock, literally. Tina Fey was like, what the hell is this? Like, this has to be the butt of some kind of... <laughs> You're right. I mean, it is, I think when that delusion cracks, I, I, in the lead up to this, because I haven't read... I was not a big reader of like quit lit when I was in the Academy. I didn't go off searching for people on the internet who had bad experiences to read about them. I just kind of pushed it away and just committed to my delusion. But before our conversation, I was curious. I was like, what are people writing about their post-academic lives? So I just Googled it. I was like, you know, post-academia life after academia. And it's pretty clear that there's some people out there that have a, have really suffered from, being under this delusion and having it crack. There's a lot of, I think, people that have had some serious emotional trauma, economic trauma, um, as a result of, of having their other letting their delusion take hold of them or it cracking in an adverse way to them. And I'll, I would just say 
to folks out there who are in our position who see their delusion cracking, it, it can be freedom. You know, it is, it is the removal of something false from you. It is not you disappearing, even though you have probably in a large way identified with that. But it is a it is a shedding of your skin and back to like the you're back to you can go back to the core you, except now you have some real experience that is valuable. No matter what you're studying, um, you're probably thinking critically about it. You're probably processing a lot of information. If you're working with any kind of data or any kind of uh, crew or any kind of budget, then you've got real experience and uh, people are going to ask you about it. The first question I got asked every time, every time I was on that in that job market was about archaeology, and that typically took up half of the job interview. They just wanted to hear what that was and what that was like. And you know, you're good at weaving a narrative. If you've gone through a humanities or a social science PhD, you know how to weave a narrative. So you have to you have to make that part of your narrative, um, and that that would be valued. People talk about PhDs flipping burgers, and I don't think that's—I don't think it's as dramatic as that for most of the PhDs out there. I think folks like us have the skills to make this transition. You know, it's a trap in a way being stuck in the academy, tenure trap, or whatever you want to call it. Right? When you leave, that means you escaped, right? You know, there's some ego to that too, and also like a period of licking your wounds. I was angry for a while, man. I was, I had about a year. I would, every time I'd take my dog out for a walk around the block, I would just, as I do, just talk to myself, <laughs> explaining to myself why I got out and how I got out and what it meant to me. You're reminding yourself like, no, it's like leaving a bad relationship, right? Yeah, I'm on my own. Yeah, I have to figure things out, but I'm so much better off. Like, and you have to maybe, you know, for me, I've, I've looked back over my shoulder a couple of times and I actually applied for a tenure trap job. Just I have other things I do. This was, I don't know, last year. And I thought like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be a lecturer at Binghamton University. I adjuncted there for a minute. And in the rejection letter, they like told me who got the job. Huh. And I, I told my partner and he's like, what kind of industry tells you who gets the job in a rejection letter? And I was like, yeah, totally. Right. Like, I'm, yeah. I was like, Good. I'm glad I dipped my toe in just to like remind myself. I mean, that's, and that's just me. I'm not saying it's bad for everyone. Like, Hey, sometimes I wonder, like say a tenure trap, <laughs> Freudian slip, say a tenure track job fell into my lap when I was, you know, 30 and finishing school. Would I have taken it? Probably, you know, what about you? Like, what if that had fallen into your lap? Would you have taken it? If I had walked right out of graduate school into a tenure track job, I absolutely would have taken that job. I took one look at the job market, what was happening to people, and I said, this is not a good investment in me, my skills, or my time. But if someone had put it right up in front of me and said, this can be yours, I probably would have taken it if, at this point, it was somewhere I wanted to be. That's the other big if, right? Is I don't, I, all, no offense to people who live in, in the far-flung parts of America, but not, not where I wanted to move myself, not where I wanted to bring my family, not, not what I wanted. So... I think I would have tried it. Uh, I might have still been stuck there because that that would have made the delusion complete, right? You know, and it would have been real then at that point. I would have had this tenure track job, but whether that would have made me happy in the long run, um, I don't know because you still live in what I think was a fairly myopic world, focused on a small sliver of something that, let's face it, is relatively unimportant. 
and this is a big point I want to make, a lot of the things that we study in the humanities and social sciences have great value because they form part of the narratives and mythology by which we make our lives, tells us who we are. And you go out there and you read the news in the BBC and you see some somebody discovered something on a big archaeological dig and you say, oh, wow, humanity is fascinating. That's really cool. But I had a hard time as an archaeologist, and this is a controversial thing to say, and I know many of my former colleagues will agree with me, but I had a terribly difficult time towards the end of graduate school defending why I thought it was worthwhile for us to keep doing this kind of archaeology. I called it once, I think I got in a debate once with my advisor, I called it entertainment in front of a group of people. I said, I think we're essentially entertainers. Here we are in Los Angeles we're digging up these things and writing these narratives so that people can feel good when they pick up their iPhone in the morning, you know, and open their news and see that someone's discovered something. Because what else are we doing, right? It's not producing things that make people's lives better. So how can I make some great claim about some society X thousand numbers of years ago and see it apply directly to me today, you know? And I love archaeology, so I don't mean to disparage. I just think that's a question that is willfully ignored by most archaeologists. Willfully ignored indeed, I think, by many in the humanities. Like, I, this is why I took such issue with academic writing. Why are we not writing about this in a way that's accessible? I feel like sometimes people were willfully obfuscating their ideas yep. or just finding something totally obscure. And I also have a very practical bent, probably because, you know, we both have blue collar roots. I grew up with, you know, work ethic kind of foisted upon me. Like you said, I remember the three days before I turned 16, my mom got me a job and I was like, okay, <laughs> And, uh, you know, the lack of wanting to acknowledge practicality really rubbed me the wrong way, especially in discussions about class that people would have while swirling, you know, the local reason. <laughs> like, I, like, come on. I just, I needed to go, I needed to be free. I needed to just, I needed to just jump and fly and see where I landed. And it seems like you did the same, but you were also very pragmatic about it. And look where you are now. You're a success story. The world to me now seems like a bigger, a more vibrant, and a more intellectually interesting place. I will tell you that. I feel more intellectually engaged outside of the academy than I was inside because the scope of the things that I can pay attention to is so much broader. When you're scrambling to find your place in this before it is a meaningful job for you, um, you only can focus in one place, right? You got to keep feeding this delusion. You got to work hard at it takes away from your ability to like look around you at things that are happening right in front of you. It is, to me, my opinion, better for me to be outside of academia for my overall intellectual health and ability. Now that said, I got to like write a book or something, right? Like you do, like it doesn't mean anything if I don't share it. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll put something together at some point, but I feel more intellectually engaged with the world just having a job uh, outside of the academy than I ever did inside the academy. That's really inspiring. So you kind of already gave some some good advice, but if you were to give some encouragement to someone who's like, shit, man, I'm at the end of the road and there's no pot of gold on the other side of this rainbow that I have been deluding myself with for you know seven years. What encouragement would you give to someone who is just about to leave the academy and like toe into the real world, so to speak? That time spent in the academy was not wasted time, even if you're not going to go into your field. You have both soft and hard skills that are very, very applicable 
to the world around you. It may take you a small amount of time to figure out what they are, but off the top of my head, I can tell you that you can synthesize. If you've made it through a PhD program, chances are, if you went to a good one, you can synthesize information. You can read something very technical, even if it's not in your field and figure out how to study it and parse it. You could probably self-teach. You could definitely write. Um, you hopefully have done something project management oriented. You have some sort of personnel management or budget management if you're in field science like we were. And your education will be valued. People will value you for having gone through that. You, you shouldn't have to start from the very bottom. Um, so first of all, that's the good news is that there are real skills there. The second piece of advice I would have, and this is easier said than absorbed, I think, by a lot of people, is um, if you can, if you, if, you, if you have the emotional wherewithal after this experience, envision your departure from academia as a great lessening of a burden. You take away something that constrains you. Now you are unchained. You have been forged in an intellectually rich environment. Um, your brain has been trained hardcore. And now you can go out there and you can use that. And now you can use it however you want. Okay. You're not, you're not limited to using that within an academy, published or perish. Now you can use that brain power, that ex all that exercise you've done with your brain, you can now use it. You can use it to do something you like. You can use it to make money. You can use it to structure your life however you see fit. You're now jailbroke. Um, and the other thing is that um, in the academy, we – how can I say this without sounding like an ass? Um, we all think – I think a lot of people believe that the world is composed of people who are as smart as the academics they were around for the past 10 years. You're used to being in an environment where everybody is operating on an intellectually high level. And when you're out in the real world, there is more diversity in intellectual interests and ability in the world. And uh, you will quickly realize that you're much smarter than you thought you were. You're, this, is, this has been really informative and really inspirational. This has been very therapeutic, Jill. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to, to talk with you. Um, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what happens next. Amen, man. This is this has been great. So thank you for listening to Academic Defectors. I'm Jillian Marshall, and this has been our conversation with Ben Nigra. Thank you so much. Truly an amazing and inspiring story. Thanks so much again for listening to Academic Defectors. See you next time.